all our cases involve an injury of some sort. Often when it's an auto accident or a trip and fall accident or a workplace accident, often you are talking about people who have had to deal with neurologists and orthopedists. Hello there and welcome back to the Mighty My Future Business Show. My name is Rick Nusky. I'm your host. I'm very excited today. I have somebody on the line that I've just been speaking with prior to the call. We've had a, a great deal of fun <laughs> trying to work out the technical issues that you can sometimes get with these types of things. And with that being said, on today's show, I've had the pleasure of welcoming the attorney at law, Mr. Mitchell Ashley. Welcome to the show, Mitchell. Hello. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Pleasure to have you here. Now, you and I are going to be talking about personal injury, what it takes to run a successful law firm, and the process behind securing results for your clients. So there's certainly a lot to unpack here, Mitchell, and uh, it is customary for us to start at the start and find out where you're calling in from today. Sure. My office is located in downtown Manhattan, New York City. Oh, beautiful. What do you love about the place the most? You know what? I'm a lifelong New Yorker. I was born in the Bronx. I live. I now live in Brooklyn. I've lived in Manhattan. So I, I went to school in the state of New York. I'm just a New Yorker at heart. I went yeah, to law school in New York. I love it here. <laughs> Absolutely. So what's what's changed from from the very first early days of your, I guess, your life there through to today? Has much changed? Well. In terms of my law practice or just life in general? Just life in general. We'll get to your law practice in a moment. Sure. Look, I think New York City has uh, gone through wild periods in the course of my life. As you can see, you know, I'm a white-haired man. So, <laughs> you know, I was here through the 70s where there wasn't a thing. I was a, a kid, but there wasn't a thing that didn't have graffiti on it and, you know, some horrible crime issues. And then... You know, we, we did calm down quite a bit uh, in the 80s and the 90s, and the city really took off. And neighbor things that were never neighborhoods are now livable neighborhoods. Where yeah, my wow. office is is the Wall Street District. When I was a little boy, there was nothing down here but offices. And now it's as residential as it is commercial. And that's true for, you know, much of the city. And then, of course... You know, September 11th certainly changed a lot of things in this city oh, for yeah. a long time. Yeah. And most recently, COVID, let's face it, the city of New York got hit very, very hard with that. Uh, and uh, that has changed things to this day. We have, we are still uh, seeing fewer New Yorkers on the subways than we used to see. It's about two-thirds of the way back, but not a, all the way back. Yep. And we have a lot of, we still have very staggered work schedules. You know, we were very, it was pretty easy to tell this city, work day, a weekday to a weekend, the subways, you know, the amount of traffic they had. But now they tell you that the busiest days on the subway are Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Monday and Friday are much lighter. Yeah, because people have staggered work schedules. Yeah, so it's certainly changing. That's for sure and certain. Now, prior to uh, you know all of this, as a as a kid growing up, what do you what do you remember? What's a fond memory you can share with us? 
Well, <laughs> look, I'm a sports fan, so I have great memories of the Yankees doing very well. Oh, yes. Uh, I have great memories of ticker tape parades that I saw when I was an adult, too. So those are some of my fondest memories. My office windows look on Broadway, the area that, if you're not from here, is referred to as the Canyon of Heroes and is where the ticker tape parades go. Oh, wow. So I've seen many. I've seen the Yankees go up. I've seen... Uh, the Rangers have one. I've seen the U.S. Women's, you know, World Cup soccer team have them. I've seen uh, Sammy Sosa had one for breaking the home run record. I've seen many, and they are a spectacular event if you've never experienced one. Yeah, I can imagine. You know, the city that never sleeps. I can, I can just imagine how much fanfare that would go with it. I always think about that sort of ticker tape stuff and how much. How much of it goes down the drain and all around the place? There's, there's tons of it. There must be. Well, it's really a fascinating sight to see. Uh, you know, my office is here, and you just see it pouring out of the windows. I mean, yes. when we did for, um, you know, the heroes, um, uh, for some of the soldiers, some of the, some of the parades, the amount of paper you see coming out the windows, and it's not ticker tape anymore. No. Uh, but it is just, you know, pa- all sorts of paper coming out of the windows all over the place. And if it's a windy day, <laughs> it's swirling around. And then after the parade passes, it is an army of sanitation workers. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, and you'd be amazed at how clean the streets are, you know, within a few hours after the parade is over. But if you look in some of the trees and in some of the hedges and on some of the windowsills, you see paper for quite some time. <laughs> I love it. Now, obviously, uh, in your location, there'd be lots of places to go have a meal with friends. Do you enjoy doing that? And what's your favorite type of meal? Well, <laughs> look at me. As I said, I have two chins now. So, yes, I do enjoy going out. <laughs> and, you know, look, I'm very equal opportunity. There's, there's really not a food I dislike. I am, you know, very partial to... Uh, you know, all sorts of ethnic foods, Italian, Chinese, uh, Jewish food, you know, everything, sushi, all that. So I, I love it all. And, uh, you know, right, you point out correctly that there are more than enough restaurants all over the place to have yeah. any sort of food. Now, tell me a little bit, when you've got some downtime, do you, do you find, do you enjoy having a bit of quiet time for yourself? I do. I am a uh, ocean lover and a beach lover. I'm fortunate to have uh, a home near the beach and nothing I like better than sitting on the beach and swimming in the ocean. So yeah. I really enjoy that. Now, since you mentioned earlier about COVID and how, how's it, how it changed some dynamics, has it affected uh, you know people's ability to go to sports events? And do you still go to them? I still go to them. And it really... It, it is not affecting that any longer. It certainly right. was for some time. Yeah. But, and you are seeing people wear masks, even at outdoor arenas. You're certainly seeing people wear masks in Madison Square Garden or the Barclays Center, which are indoor venues. Um, same as you're seeing people still wear masks on the subway. And I think you're going to see that for years to come. But the venues are still packed for the big events. Yeah, love it. Now, we talked about earlier, um, you know, what life was like growing up. Now, I always remember having people in my life that I would look to, Mitchell, for advice and I guess somewhat mentorship. 
Did you have anybody like that in your life as you were growing up through those early formative years? I certainly, I was blessed. Um, uh, my parents were great. My father was an attorney. And so he was a different type of attorney, but he was an attorney. Yep. And uh, he helped me a lot in terms of knowing the law and knowing that stuff. Uh, my mom, you know, has always been a guiding force. She's a teacher. So by nature, uh, she was always very good at guiding me through things. Yep. And so I was really blessed. And, the, you know, my extended family, my family is fairly close. So we're not a very big group, but I have aunts and uncles and all that. Um, so that was always uh, really very important to me. I can only imagine what sort of discipline it takes and I guess the importance of your father to um, stay disciplined to uh, achieve um, the success that you have. Tell me a little bit about the importance of discipline in your life and for anybody else who's thinking about following this path. Well, you know, look, I think it is impossible to um, achieve success in anything without a certain level of discipline. I have to tell you, certainly in junior high school and high school, I can't say I was the most disciplined student <laughs> ever. <laughs> you too. Uh, <laughs> In college, or as you would refer to university, yep. you know, the first two years, I can't say I was the most uh, diligent student. And at one point, my father sat me down and, and said, you know, when did you, what makes you believe that you're going to the University of Rochester Country Club? You're there to work. Uh -huh. And uh, something clicked. And the last four semesters of college, I was on the dean's list every semester. <laughs> so something clicked. Something and, clicked. Yeah, and then I didn't go right to law school, uh, which I thought was very beneficial. I went into the working world, uh, had not did things, nothing to do with law. I used to do um, premium and incentive sales for the casinos in Atlantic City. And through that, the, you know, kind of learned the benefit of higher education and originally went back to get my law degree and my MBA. And then it was something that happened during law school that made me, you know, forget the MBA and just continue on and go into personal injury law. Yeah, wow, great feedback. Thank you very much, Mitchell. And I'm wondering, um, I'm not a very early riser, I, I guess, uh, due to the demands of your world. Do you, do you, are you an early riser? And what's your day look like, typically? It's funny that you say that because I don't think law is an early field, really. I think it's really a late field. Uh -huh. um, not that I don't, you know, get up, I guess, on the earlier side. I'm normally up between, you know, between 6 and 6.30. Yep. But I, I think anyone who um, is a litigator the way I am, you get very used to the court system. And the reality is that the courthouse is open at 9 a.m., and most judges don't take the bench till 9.30 or 10. So it becomes late, uh, you know, your day really is later. And then yep. you were very used to working after the court day, which typically ends, you know, between four and five. And really it ends, mo most times if you're in the middle of a trial, it ends about 4.30. Um, generally, you must be out of the courtrooms, which are referred to as parts in New York, um, by five, certainly. Otherwise, the court officers, the clerks all have to get overtime pay. 
and yep. the court system doesn't want that to happen. <laughs> so they clear out the jurors, yeah, they clear you out, and you're out of the building by five, certainly. Yeah, it's all, and, all economically driven in many respects, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. And, you know, and so then you're used to having to go back to the office and working until later in the night to get done what you need to get done for the next day. Or just, you know, for someone like me, I'm a solo practitioner. Yep. So when I'm on trial with one case, the office doesn't close down. So yep. the other cases still have to keep moving. Yeah, so, absolutely. You know, uh, you do need those hours. And, and so I think lawyers typically are um, later workers more than people like Wall Street guys are early risers. I don't think the average lawyer is such an early riser, but really more someone who's used to working late. Now I'm just interested in in you as a as a as an individual rather than you as a professional. When I ask this question, the very first time that you had a case, what what part did confidence play? Given the fact that you know you knew the law, but there was no experience behind you, what would what would any new lawyer that has crossed the bar, as they say, um, how did you feel? Well, you know, look, my my father taught me an expression. You know, if you're not nervous, then you're not worth anything. And so, to say I, you know, my first trial, to say I was nervous would be an understatement. But, you know, one thing, I, I used to lecture, and one of the things that I talked about, and it was to trial lawyers, younger people who wanted to become trial lawyers. Yeah. And I said, there's an old joke that, you know, on the peop on the list of people's fears, um, the first fear is speaking in public, and the second fear is death. So, you'd rather be at a funeral. You'd rather be in the casket than given the eulogy. Is the oh. joke, you yeah. know? And but luckily, I've never had that problem. Speaking in public has never been a problem to me, and so that part I felt pretty good about. Yes, um, and you know, I, but, I always, I always wonder, Mitchell. Given the ever-changing landscape of law, how difficult and how much energy your daily energy goes into staying up with law? And you know, is it case law that you have to keep on top of? Is it what is it? Statutory law? What What's the specialty for you? And how do you go about keeping up? Well, in in what I do, personal injury law, um, there are two types of law. There's statutory law, as you point out, the laws that are passed in Albany. Yep. And those certainly play a factor. But we also work uh, under the common law. Right. The common law is how the courts have interpreted statutory law over the years. And that is precedent in our cases. So you have to be aware of what the courts have held with regard to certain issues because it's not enough to just know what the statute says yeah. but it's what the courts have also said because you're constrained by that so and you know you you keep up with it uh by as a lawyer there is no shortage of the amount you read yeah, I can imagine. Now, is it is it is it something that um, you know you have to like a, as a like you might have a chartered an accountant? Is it something that you need to stay you know chartered with? Do you have to you know stay up with a number of 
hours per month to maintain your licensing? Is it that sort of situation? No, no, uh, no, we have in New York uh, required what they call CLE credits, continuing legal education credits. Ah, that's it. So for the years I was admitted, those didn't, that didn't become a rule until I was already practicing law for quite, quite some time. Yeah. And so for my uh, generation, we have to have, I believe it's 25 hours every two years. And so I take... Uh, could, you know, I continually take continuing legal education. Yeah. There's an organization in New York called the New York State Trial Lawyers Association that I'm a member of. And at one point I was, a, 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 you know, part of that organization or, or more active in it. But they offer a program called Decisions each year. And Decisions goes over, you know, 20 practice areas and kind of gives you the update over the last year of the new things that have come about in that practice area. And so, you know, I take that class every year along with some other CLEs, and that helps keeping you up to date on what's going on in the world. Yeah, fantastic feedback. I always wonder about, um, we have, uh, you know, the judge who's a human being, we've got the attorney who's a hum human being, and I always think about the word interpretation. Is it ever is it ever frustrating for an attorney when they receive a decision, um, be it through a jury or a judge, and and it's not to their liking or their favour or, or what they thought they knew about the case? Has that ever happened? And how does it make it's them happened feel? to me? And it's devastating. Yeah. Um, I had a case for a family. I, I represented a mother and her five children. Yep. Uh, and we went to trial. On the very first day of jury selection, I thought the judge made an incorrect ruling yeah. that was going to affect the trial. I asked for mistrials four or five times during the first week of trial. The trial lasted a month, uh, during which time my mother-in-law actually died, and so we didn't have court for five days. So it mm. lasted a calendar month, but it was only three weeks of trial. Yeah. And uh, in the end, the judge wrongfully dismissed the case. And to continue on for that family, I had to appeal the judge's decision. That appeal took close to two years in our wow. system. And after two years, the appellate court said I was right, that the judge was wrong and gave me a new trial. Oh, wow. So, so it's more than just frustrating. Yeah. In, you know, in a business model like mine, you know, I only get paid if I'm successful for my clients. Yeah. So in a business model like mine, have, having to have to try the case, put experts on the stand that are, you do have to pay for them. Yeah. Uh, take the time to try the case, then pay for the appeal and have to wait all that time just to be told you were right in the first place go back and try it again yeah wow that's um it's i i wonder i bet i wonder as a human being yourself and you seeing some pretty extraordinary cases i would suspect um how does that how, how difficult is it for you to um not become emotional and emotionally involved with uh i guess the people that you're serving is that a difficult thing i I mean, to me, uh, 
I am emotional to the people I'm serving. Yep. yep. I can't tell you I'm not. I absolutely yep. am. Yep. And I have, uh, it's who you are. I think you'd be inhuman mm. to, to not, you know, get involved with your client. I, I went from working in a firm where I would see a piece of the case to being a solo because I wanted to know the clients from minute one. I wanted everything to do on the case until I ultimately tried the case for them. And, you know, I don't think I could say I'm not emotional about my cases. Yeah. So, and I am, and yeah. I, you know, Always, I've had, always had this impression, Mitchell, that, you know, you'd have to keep a bit of a distance, and that's why I asked. And obviously, it's completely the opposite to what I've been, I was thinking. I don't Look, there may be lawyers out there who are good at that. Yeah. That's not my thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've, I've laughed with my clients. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, and I cried with my clients. Yeah. And sometimes it was cried out of, sadness i've been to funerals for some of my clients mm -hmm. and there were times i i had tears of joy with a client of mine who we tried his case to verdict uh the jury came back with the verdict at the reading of the verdict they had i thought they had made a math error honestly a math error after like another month-long trial and i asked the court i asked the judge to ask the jury what they meant, because you know, on when you get a verdict, it's there's different questions are asked All and right. different answers given. And I thought the jury had made a mathematical error, so the judge asked, brought the jury back in. We went over the numbers again, and in fact, I was right that the jury had misinterpreted how to say something that they wanted oh. to say. So sitting there with me and my client, who you know, his injuries made him wheelchair bound at the time of the trial. Uh, the verdict, the jury award to him went from a little over a million dollars to closer to six million dollars. Oh, that's a nice small and mistake. No, not at all. And it it was life altering for him. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, I'm loving this call, Mitchell. I, I know that we've talked about the ups and downs, and I'm, it must give you some a great deal of satisfaction when you do see those results and you walk away after a case is done and you go to a cafe or somewhere to have your lunch or whatever. Do you often reflect immediately after and, and think to yourself, wow, that was just an incredible experience? Oh, I I. Look, I think that happens. I'm fortunate to say I think that happens a lot. I've had um, two cases yeah. that involved people who lived around landfills and developed cancers and leukemias. Uh, one case involved um, 11 people. Mostly they were children when they got sick and in most cases had acute lymphocytic leukemia. Mm. Um, when that case settled, ultimately, um, it was life altering for, for, for them. And I couldn't help, but be thrilled for them and proud for the work that was done. Mm. I mean, that case went up and back to our highest court in the state for legal reasons. Um, 
A lot went into it. The case took 23 years to go from start to finish. Goodness me. And when it finally resolved, uh, the clients who not everyone lived to see it, not all the children survived. And in some cases, the parents did. I'm happy to say that even though that case settled, it must be six, seven years ago now, uh, there's still three or four of the clients that I'm still regularly in touch with. We, yeah, we were through a lot together. And then I had a similar case in the neighborhood of Staten Island, New York, where we represented 32 people. And that finally resolved in December. Um, you know, COVID causes you to kind of freeze time a little. So, but that finally resolved in December of 2021. We finally resettled all those cases. And I'm still in touch with many of those people. Um, and again, that case took over 23 years to resolve. Oh, wow. This has been one of those very revealing uh, perspectives, you know, from, from your seat looking to my seat. Uh, I really do appreciate it. Now, you've touched on some things that you've talked about um, diseases of occupation. And I think to myself, you must have some pretty interesting relationships with specialists in the health field and things like that. How important are relationships in those respects uh, for you and your performance? Well, in our cases, all our cases involve an injury of some sort. Yeah. Um, often we are, you know, when it's an a, an auto accident or a trip and fall accident yeah. um, or a workplace accident, often you are talking about people who have had to deal with neurologists and orthopedists. Um, and generally, I have had their treating doctors have testified on my client's behalf. Sometimes that hasn't happened because the treater is just too busy to testify and we have to have those the client's records reviewed by another orthopedist or another neurologist. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so over the years, I, there are some I know better than others. But by and large, I try and have the treating doctors come in and testify for their patients. Um, and in the, I also handle medical malpractice cases. And, you know, in uh, malpractice is not the same as an auto accident. The example I give always is if you call me up and say I was in a car at a red light and someone hit me in the rear and my knee went into the the uh, dashboard and I have a torn meniscus now. Yeah. I can tell you on the phone that you have a case and what's going to constrain that case is the amount of insurance coverage available from the car that hit you and whether you have what they call uh, you know, SUM or UM coverage, supplemental underinsured motorists or underinsured mo uninsured motorist coverage. But that's yeah. what's going to constrain how much you might be able to recover compared to your injury. Malpractice is not the same in that uh, to get to mal malpractice is not just a bad result at, at a hospital or in a doctor's office. That can happen. Uh, yeah. And it's not always someone's fault. Things happen sometimes. Mm -hmm. But malpractice is a doctor has to depart from good and acceptable medical practice. And the only way you get there is another doctor has to review the records. And we have to find those places where the doctor departed from good 
you know, care, whether it be neurological care, orthopedic care, the standards, uh, standards, you know, and it's the standards as they exist in this area at that time. Uh-huh. So, you know, it's not the standard. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, you know, look, we are in New York City, so the standards are, are pretty cutting edge generally. You oh, know? Yeah. But, um, you know, so the only way you get there is another doctor has to do it. And in New York, the law allows you to have a doctor from a different specialty, you know, talk about it. But I, I believe better practice is to have a doctor in the same specialty. So if you're saying an orthopedist is at fault, you have an orthopedist review the records. Um, you know, malpractice lawyers, we have a saying, you know, doctors don't generally like to testify against other doctors. That is called no. the white the white coats of silence. <laughs> um, yeah, well, look, they're a, somewhat of a, a community of their own, I'm sure I'm certain of that. But I'd love to talk a little bit about, if we could, Mitchell, um, the importance to you of confidentiality and trust. Do they play a big part in your world? I, well, absolutely. I mean, I look, I think my, my clients know that uh, I don't share what they tell me with anyone. Um, And, you know, certainly there's, I tell my clients at the start of every case you know, you're putting your medical condition at issue. You, you know, you're saying you were harmed in some way. Yeah. If there is something in your background that you think the defendants are never going to find out about, uh, they are going to find out about it. And the only way I can protect you is if you tell me about it now. In yes. some circumstances, the defendants are allowed to know about it, and I'm going to tell them about it. In other circumstances, there are some things they're not entitled to know about. And I'm going to try and protect you and go to court to try and protect you as best I can. But in terms of my relationships with my clients, certainly anything my clients tell me, I'm not telling anybody. In one ear and stays in that same ear. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, you know, you have to. Yeah, great feedback. Again, thank you very much, Mitchell. I wonder, you know, given that we're nearing the pointy end of the conversation, we've only just touched the surface of some of the the cases that you might have gone through, and I could dig deep for hours with you. I'm really loving the call. But tell me, when somebody has an injury, they're harmed in some way, what is the process when they reach out to you, and how did they go about doing that? Well, I think every case starts the same way. I get a phone call. Uh, yeah. In the modern world, often I get an email first, but the, it's the same. <laughs> um, and, you know, for every, that's kind of the first uh, hurdle. I yeah. get plenty of calls, and in plenty of circumstances, I tell someone I don't believe that to be a case. But if I do think it's a case, then our, the next step is we meet. During COVID, those meetings almost all occurred via Zoom. But we have resumed in-person meetings, whether they be here in my office, in the client's home, if it has to be, or this Saturday, I'm going to meet uh, a client who's in a rehabilitation facility because of a slip and fall, a broken leg with plates and screws. They're in rehab and, you know, they want to get things going. And I told them I'll come meet them there. So 
you know, that is the second hurdle is the meeting. Yeah. And yeah. I say that's a hurdle because at that time, I explain the details of a lawsuit. I explain how things are going to proceed. And I also make sure I know the facts as best I can. Yeah. And I then say to the client, you know, I'm willing to represent you. Do you want to retain me? Now, Simple. in my career, I can honestly tell you 99% of the time, the answer is yes. Yeah. I can think of one instance where the client took the retainer home because they want to think about it. And in the end, uh, they didn't retain me. It ha it's happened to me once in my career. One time. Yeah, great feedback. Thank you very much. Now, I, I wonder, you know, when when somebody is going through this, they're obviously short on information. They're not uh, a specialist in this field. They're the, the person that's suffering from whatever it is that's happened. Do you um, have a resource available for people that they can maybe go after this interview today to go and check out and find inf more information about what you do and, and things like that? Well, certainly they can look on my website. But more yep. importantly than that, you know, look, I don't know um, how things how advertising is in England, but and I, that is where you are. Is that right? No, sir. Close, oh. Australia. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to insult That's you. Fine. I know that could be a touchy subject. That's not an insult at all. Not at all. <laughs> oh, okay. But in Australia. Okay. Um, I don't know how advertising is in Australia, but in New York, attorney advertising is off the charts. Yeah. Um, paid per click advertising on Google the lawyer ads are the most expensive ones on the average TV show. Uh, you see lawyer ads, especially on the local stations constantly. And what I tell people, I have an Instagram show on Mondays at six o'clock. And I remind people that unlike all those TV firms that you see all the time, if you pick up the phone and dial my office, the Ashley law firm, you can ask for me, the boss, and you're going to get me. And I, I tell people, pick up the phone, call me, pick my brain. I, it's free. Here for you. And it's what I do. And I don't view calls where it turns out not to be a case. I don't view that as a waste of time. Because to me, I've made the connection. Yeah. And if that person needs a lawyer down the road hopefully they're going to pick up the phone and call me again. Yes. And, and I say that, you know, the other thing I say, having been in this field for a while, is it may turn out that you don't need a personal injury lawyer. You know what? I know a lot of lawyers nowadays. I've referred no people bit. when necessary for criminal lawyers. I've referred people to family and matrimonial lawyers. Uh, I've referred people to real estate attorneys. You know, I do have a network of friends who don't all do what I do. So <laughs> I've been able to help people. And, and uh, at the end of the day, you know, in my career, I try and help people. And if I can help people who end up not being my clients, but put them in touch with the right person, that's fine, too. All right. Well, look, um, with all that being said, um, you know, we've we've only, again, touched the surface of what you've done and the experiences that you've had. Where is the best place for them to connect with you? Is it on social? Is it on LinkedIn? Do you have a website? Could you share uh, that with us? Sure. Well, the website is theashleylawfirm.com. 
Um, you know, on my phone number, I can give it to you if you want. It's 212-513-1300. And if they want to just shoot me an email, it's really a difficult code to break. It's Mitchell with one L at the Ashley law firm.com. <laughs> it's pretty easy. There um, you go. And if they look on, you know, I'm on Instagram. It's the Ashley law firm. If they search for me, they'll find me. I'm on Facebook. If they search for me, I'm on threads, you know, the, the meta platform, um, yes, sir. you know, look, I'm, uh, you know, I'm not really an Elon Musk fan. So at the moment, I'm not really happy with what's become of Twitter. So I'm not, even though uh, I have a presence on Twitter, I'm not there very much. No, look, you're not, you're the man about town. You're the man to come and see if uh, somebody's suffering. That's for sure and certain. And uh, for everybody who's on the call today, I'll be making sure that the links back to the AshleyLawFirm.com are available to you. No matter where you see the call, you are going to have access back to Mitchell and all the wonderful work and, and solutions that he has waiting for you. So be sure to go visit the AshleyLawFirm.com. And with all that being said, Mitchell, thank you so very much for spending some time with me on the show today. Well, thank you for having me.